Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am so happy to be here with Rabbi David Wolby, who is the longtime rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, as well as a revered author of many books. Uh, his most recent book is a biography of King David, King David, The Divided Heart. He's a public intellectual, a scholar, and um, an inspiration to me in particular as somebody who is uh, not just a thinker, but also a community leader and somebody who I think as the subtitle in the book on King David, A Divided Heart, lives in multiple worlds. He, um, he cares about people and he is attentive to their spiritual needs, but he also is part of a larger conversation with thinkers and ideas that uh, will outlive us all. So welcome, David. Thank you. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. You grew up in Philadelphia and you've spent many years in Los Angeles. And I'm wondering, can one take the David out of Philadelphia? Are you are you a Philadelphian at heart or are you a Los Angelesian at heart? Or does being a Jew make you a kind of outsider in all circumstances? And, and so geography is the wrong frame for thinking about sort of one's formation. Well, I, I think that it's true that that Jews are have a certain outsiderishness, although I think these days outsiderishness has become so fashionable that every group feels itself to be outsiders. Um, but we have been classically. Nonetheless, although I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time, I don't have anything bad to say about Los Angeles. It is a beautiful place to live. I am an East Coast person at heart um, and the East Coast often. And when the plane lands in the East Coast, I feel somehow at home. So, yes. Los Angeles is culturally and intellectually much deeper than people on the East give it credit for. Uh, but for me, the East Coast is still the gold standard of, uh, of interest in the things that I am interested in. Many people who go to your synagogue are involved in show business in some way, directly or indirectly. And I think you have some uh, lineage to show business as well. There's a vaudeville uh, dimension to your backstory. And of course, being a rabbi, especially uh, of a large congregation, there's an element of the pulpit as this kind of stage. So with that in mind, with this sort of, you know, Hollywood, this, the, the sense of Hollywood as part of uh, the backstory of, of being a rabbi today, one thing that jumped out at me when I was reading your book on King David is uh, the element. So two things, uh, actually. One is that he's beloved, right? And his name, as you point out, probably means beloved. And the other is the, the element of deception, that King David is um, perhaps a sincere person, but there's always a shadow hanging over him of maybe he's putting on a pose or putting on a face. And so I love your thoughts on sort of, uh, and, the, and the book has been optioned as a Hollywood film. Like, talk to me about King David, the performer, King David, the, the Hollywood star, and the other King David, the hidden King David, who is, who is other than his persona, who's kind of um, got an interiority that might be harder for us to find. I think that... Um the quality of charisma, which David clearly had from the time that he was young, which is the, the quality, it, it, it's the quality in some sense of making other people want to be close to you or want to be near you, even if not close to you. That quality of charisma encourages a certain artificiality because it gets results all out of proportion to its effort. 
And so I think that for people, and I've seen this, and also it induces a certain vertigo, um, which is, I think, why stars are so often drawn to weird um, subcults and groups and so on. It's because they feel inside themselves like, I, I can't believe that everybody thinks so much of me, worships me, you know, throws millions of dollars my way for for trivial things. It's very hard to keep your bearings. And so I think for David, too, the fact that when he was young already, he was outstripping Saul, who was the king, induced a certain like headiness and vertigo. And the performative aspects of his character are probably in part from that. Um, and also from the necessary deceptions that leadership induces in everyone. What your question suggests and what interests me very deeply is that the Bible also portrays him as someone who never was never involved in idolatry, never moved away from God. That is, he may have moved away from God in his moral conduct in his own life, but not in his connection, his inner sense that God was central to his life. And, and that, in the end, is what saved him. Um, and so the question, I think, in a modern world, which is a question that you ask many times on this podcast in one way or another, is how do you find that authentic root inside your soul when, when everything has been uprooted? So according to what you're saying, David has a certain spiritual integrity, even when he's sort of letting people's praise get to his head. I think that that's true. And that's why even, you know, regardless of what the Bible scholars say about the authorship of the Psalms, I find it so compelling to, to think of this, uh, uh, of David the Psalmist as, in some sense, the outlet for David the King, that he's got a sort of the more intensely a public figure he is, the more he needs to be a private figure to counterbalance that. But what does spiritual integrity buy us and what does it not buy us? I know I, the phrase buy is, is maybe too American, but like, you know, obviously David is not a morally exemplary person in all circumstances. And so the fact that he refrains from idolatry, that's commendable, but refraining from idolatry doesn't, let's say, stop him from killing Bathsheba's husband and, and you know, taking her as a dubiously legitimate wife. So if spiritual integrity can't protect David from something like that, although I, I, you, meant, you do refer to a commentator who suggests that David's sins were wiped away in virtue of his <laughs> fidelity to God. So what other, what other muscles do we need to be exercising to ensure, let's say, moral integrity or other kinds of integrity besides the spiritual? Or how would you reframe the question? <laughs> well, no, I, I think actually was, I, I want to answer both sides of the question that I thought was a great question. Um, and, and I would just want to say, like, to those who listen to your, your questions are always at least as rich as the answers you get, which is why it's wonderful to have the chance to be on um, and, and why I love to listen to your podcast. Uh, I would say, first of all, spiritual integrity, what it gives you is the possibility of return. That is, so the reason that David could come back is because he had that. If he hadn't had that, I think he would have been completely lost. It does not give you, as you point out, the guarantee of, of decency or morality, um, because you can feel connected to God, you know, it, it, as you know, Ramban Nachmanides says you can be Naval Birshuta Torah, that you can be basically a jerk with the permission of the Torah. So you can have 
a real authentic relationship to our spiritual tradition and act like a jerk. And, and so I agree, it is a different quality. It's a quality of both morality and empathy, which are, I think, necessarily intertwined um, because the moral person without empathy is, is, a, is a, a Puritan parody. And the empathetic person without morality is, you know, the Mrs. Jellybee in, uh, in Dickens who doesn't feed her own children, but, but is always giving money to Africa. Um, so you need both. You need both empathy and morality. And, and that, that combination, I think, helps make a good person. I love that. That's uh, going to be one of those lines that I'll, I'll be quoting for many years. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back. So um, one of the things that always jumped out at me about David, and I, f- I always felt a sadness about it, um, maybe I'm overreading a little bit. Um, so he's b- beloved by many people, but nowhere does it say that David loves so Jonathan loves him, Michal loves him, Saul loves him. David does not love any of those people, or it's not mentioned that he does. That strikes me as profoundly lonely. I don't know if that's a function of, in some sense, the asymmetry, the, fa- the very fact that people love him so much makes it impossible for him to reciprocate, or if there's something in there about sort of the pressure of being so beloved that makes it hard to find yourself. But how do you, how do you read the, the lack of David's loving as a as sort of an active feature of his selfhood? So this was literally one of the two questions that led me to want to write this book. One was, does David love? And the other is, why does David get to be the progenitor of the Messiah when he does so, so many bad things? Um, and to the first, first of all, I will just say for those of you who are, uh, uh, you know, who like manuscripts, that weirdly in the Septuagint, it does in one place say that David loves, but it doesn't make it into the Hebrew Bible, which is makes it even more interesting in a way. Um, so let me take one step back and say, I never, I never agreed, you may not agree with me on this, but I never agreed with people who said, in order to love someone, you have to love yourself. I know a lot of people who don't really love themselves, but boy, they really love their children. They would do anything for their children and they they have terrible problems of self-esteem on their own, but they know how to love. And similarly, loving yourself is no guarantee that you'll be able to love others. I think David had a lot of self-love, but I don't know if what he felt for other people, even for his children, was actually love. I don't know. And children obviously are a special case because they also involve your own, you know, ego projections into the world. So he's clearly devastated when Avshalom dies, his son dies. Devastated. There's no question about that. Um, But is that love? I'd like to think so. Um, I'd like to think that David is capable of love. And I think like reading and rereading and rereading the story, I'm going to come down on the side of love, but I think that it's, it is a significant uh, omission that it never says that he loves. And that says something about, I think also the loneliness of, of kingship, of monarchy. It's a, there's a very Shakespearean quality to David. I don't recall who the first person is to love in the Torah, but my go-to is Isaac. It's right. When God says to Abraham, who, whom you love, the first love is actually parent for child, not, not man for woman. Great. So, but. Right. Actually, so that's fascinating. Abraham is told by God that he loves Isaac, but we're not told by the narrator 
that he loves Isaac, which is also fascinating, right? Because maybe Abraham doesn't love him and there's a kind of rebuke or um, a nudge in there, like, if only you would love Isaac. Or uh, Again, that's that's maybe too midrashic, but... Um, there's no such thing as too midrashic. <laughs> <laughs> we, hear, we hear of Abraham's love of Isaac from God speaking to Abraham. It's not really corroborated exactly, but... I'm glad you mentioned that because what my go-to for love, at least romantic love, is Isaac loves Rebecca and brings her into his tent. And that seems in some sense contrasted with Abraham's relationship to Sarah, where it's like, pretend you're my sister. <laughs> um, so um, if we think about Isaac and King David as sort of foils of one another, Isaac is the most private person uh, in Genesis. He goes into the tent. He's not really an active person. Things happen to him. And yet he's the person who maybe has the most intimacy uh, with his uh, spouse. King David, who's sort of not allowed to live in the tent because he has to go out there and fight wars and, uh, and uh, you know, defeat his enemies. Maybe he's not afforded the sort of the luxury of the tent. So if we, if we play out that as an archetype, we sort of, we think of the person who's in the tent as um, a sensitive person. We think of the person who's out there in the arena in the political world as, as sort of an active a fighter. And um, that, that gets me thinking about the sort of conflict potentially between let's call it spirituality and, um, or maybe spirituality is the wrong word. Well, we'll just say love, love and politics. So Hannah Arendt, who's a political philosopher and political theorist, wrote her dissertation on St. Augustine and the concept of love in St. Augustine. And in many places, she says things like love is an anti-political force because um, the relationships that we have with people take us, um, the, the, the intimacy that we have with them takes us away from the political interests we have in sort of shaping the world in a certain way. And we're in some sense held hostage by those relationships, regardless of whether they're uh, politically convenient. So I don't know if you buy that framing, but um, what, what is your experience with this sort of public versus private, the political versus, if you will, anti-political or loving in terms of how you relate to people sort of one-on-one -on -one versus the image that you project when you're sort of standing for something as an op-ed columnist. This is, it's such a rich um, field. Uh, before, before I get to the second half of the question, just on Arendt's observation, I think that that observation is one that is desperately needed in our world, because when everything gets subsumed by politics, one of the ways of helping families heal is to remind them that that love ought to be a greater force in their lives and in their relationship with each other than their political divisions. Um, so that's one. And as every clergy knows, you know, nobody at the funeral says it was about his politics. It's always the, the quality of your love that uh, that is remembered and, and celebrated. And the other thing that I would say is, but it is also, I mean, I don't know that every clergy rabbi politician would say this, but I'm very conscious of having a public self and a private self. And that the two are not, in fact, entirely coterminous with one another, that they are different. When I was when 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 my daughter, who's now in her 20s, when she was a little girl, once she said to me, you know, daddy, I only like you in jeans and pajamas. 
which was her way of saying, when you put on your suit and go out to be rabbi, you're not, you don't strike me as my father, right? Not quite the same way. Um, so I think there is an inbuilt, necessary, performative, and therefore shielding aspect to being a public figure that you can't, you know, if you're going to live a life outside the tent, and, and that may not be, and for some people it's good, for some people it's not good to live outside the tent. But if you choose to live outside the tent, you cannot live entirely the way you do inside the tent. That's very wise. And um, I think it, it maps nicely onto your frame for David, right? He's got, he's a divided self, a divided heart, because he's got many roles and each chapter describes a kind of a different persona, a different mask that he wears. So I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with this sort of, plurality of selves and, and the, the the idea that you can be authentic and un- intentional about having many selves. But what do you say to the concern that that sort of division is a kind of hypocrisy or a disintegration? Sort of what's the difference between a healthy version of I'm one way on the beam and another way at home versus the the version that leads a person to have a kind of identity crisis or to feel that they're not that they're that they're not in control because you know it's their personae that are sort of driving them. So I a little bit repair to I think the title he used it differently of, of Trilling's book Sincerity and Authenticity. That is, you can be sincere without being fully authentic. So for example, when I do a funeral and I'm sad for the people who are there, I'm sincerely sad, but am I authentically sad for the for the person who passed away the way they are? I mean, there are cases, obviously, when I am, because when you've been a rabbi in a congregation for 25 years, you do funerals for people whom you really knew. But a lot of the time, it's about being sincere. Um, and and I, I do think, by the way, and, and you and I, I'm sure, can think of many examples, that it does distort some personalities. And you do see... Um, egos in public figures, including in the clergy, that feel to me like defenses against the the completely um, impossible demands on the depth on on the depth of their feeling again and again and again and again, because you're living other people's lives. So so I actually think that that what I wouldn't call it hypocrisy. Um, I think that that reserving of a private space for your privateness is an essential survival tool. Um, and, and in this, by the way, on the, on the other side, those rabbis, and, and I think there is some difference that we have observed so far between men and women who are rabbis in this. Those rabbis who are more fully and authentically emotionally present at the bedside, at the funeral home, at and then at the wedding, I think the toll is enormous, enormous, enormous. And it's very hard. And it's almost like you have to a little be, bit be like the surgeon who has some emotional remove because you know that you have to go on to the next patient. So the, the question of public and private life, which is a, a, one obviously I've given a lot of thought to, it also I think the other part of it that is worth thinking about is how much it has changed. I mean, my father, who was a rabbi in Philadelphia, 
He had friends for 50 years who called him rabbi. Nobody would do that today. So the collapsing of the distance, the sense, you know, we don't think of almost any authority figure as essentially removed from ourselves has also been, I I don't want to say good or bad. I, I don't really have a value judgment of it, but it has changed the dynamic between clergy and congregation, between, you know, professor and student, between police and and citizen, all of the things that used to be removed authorities are no longer that. Hmm. Yeah. How do you think authority in general has changed sort of over a generation or two? And um, do you think our expectations of rabbis or of authorities are well calibrated to the reality or should should we have higher or lower expectations or is that too general of a question well authority has clearly diminished in almost every area you know the doctor the scientist the clergy and part of it i'm mean, part of the the good the i don't good reason but the reason that it is diminished is because we know too much we know how all these people have abused their authority in in a thousand different ways so part of it is um you know, uh, like, I, I mean, to take an easy example, a priest in Ireland will never have the authority that they did 100 years ago. And given what it was 100 years ago, that's a very good thing. Um, the, but we do pay a price for it uh, because s- society is too complex to rely on your own decisions in every area. You just can't. And you need people who you trust, who will say, in this area, do this. And the lack of social trust, um, not only in each other, but in authority, is, is a real, it's a real, I think it's a real social crisis. So one of my spicier takes, and I'll try to say this in a way that's diplomatic, because I, uh, I like people too much to want to sort of lead with controversy, but let's see if I can say this in a way that that doesn't come off the wrong way. So um, broadly speaking, there are sort of two camps within Judaism as there are within a lot of religious traditions. There's a sort of more liberal camp that emphasizes individual autonomy, and there's a more conservative that emphasizes, let's say, communal norms or precedent or heteronomy. And um, obviously, there's a huge middle ground. And I think you and I probably would broadly identify with some sense of moderation or balance between those extremes. Um, But in laying it out this way, there's a temptation to think that in the more Haredi, the more ultra-Orthodox world, it's authoritarian. I think um, the rabbi says what the truth is, and you just, you, you obey. And in the more liberal world, uh, there, there might be a caricature that the rabbi says something, and if you don't like it, you fire the rabbi or you switch synagogues. But like, it's transactional. They're for hire, and um, they don't. Their their word doesn't really carry weight. It doesn't have legal authority or or necessarily moral authority. You don't like the opinion, get another opinion, um, and maybe Google allows people to shop around and and find what they want. So I think that's the stereotype. But let me give the um, <laughs> let me give the contrarian take. The contrarian take is something like. In a world in which the norm is literacy, um, people go to the rabbi for guidance, but they also have books and their own personal familial traditions to keep the rabbi in check. 
And in a world in which there isn't literacy or where there's less literacy, there's no accountability to check the rabbi. And so ironically, let's say in a more liberal branch of Judaism, the rabbi has outsized authority in some sense because there's nobody else to represent authentic Judaism in that person's eyes. And they don't have the confidence to say, you know, I've read the Talmud and I know that your reading is selective or, wh- or whatever it is. So how do you, I mean, maybe that's a little bit too crude of a formulation, but um, do, you think, do you think that there's authoritarianism in some sense in the liberal Jewish world because of the literacy gap? Or how would you think about authority as, um, as different in the world of liberal Judaism or liberal religion versus conservative religion? I think that your, your paradigm works perfectly with one big caveat, which is that we don't get asked questions. I mean, maybe we would be authoritarian if someone came to me and said, you know, is this kosher, is, is my pot that I dropped a drop of milk into still kosher? And I gave them an answer. Then they would say, since I have no one else to check, I'm going to just trust my rabbi. But the number of Jewish legal questions that I have received over the 25 years that I've been the rabbi of my synagogue, have you could probably count on two hands. They tend to be more social, relational questions or questions that everybody feels like they could weigh in on. I'll give you an important um, and characteristic example. When COVID started, we never streamed our services. So in theory, the question was, is it halakhically permissible to stream our services, which we now do? But in practice, it was, well, Rabbi, all these other conservative synagogues are doing this, so I know it can be done. The question is, does it feel right for us? So, yeah, in theory, that authoritarian would be true. But in, in practice, I don't, think, um, I, I don't think that anybody in my congregation would say that their lives are dictated by my dictates. Fair enough. So maybe the legal realm or the, the realm of Jewish observance, it doesn't work that way. But do you think there are other sort of broader areas where, you know, people would say, you know, my rabbi says X and therefore like that's the, that, that's the truth? I think there used to be. But now the, the giant <laughs> maw of politics has sucked everything in such that I think it's primarily a, a political question. So I gave a, a sermon about, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I talked about what Jewish law said in in on different sides of it. But I think that the reaction to it was almost entirely dictated by where someone was on the political spectrum as opposed to the Jewish sources. Okay, great. So one of the topics that's already come up and that I'm fascinated by is, of course, the relationship between religion and politics. But to get a little bit more granular on that, and I'll, we, can, we can explore, I want to think with you about Judaism and liberalism. So when I say liberalism, I don't mean, you know, voting for Democrats. <laughs> this is mostly for the listeners. Um, I just I mean the, the, the tradition of political thought that begins with Hobbes and continues with Locke, and you know maybe we could include Machiavelli, that basically says um, there's a rational way to organize society, and um, we don't need to appeal to God or to metaphysics or to the dictates of uh, of our sages to figure out what that 
way should should be. We can just sort of derive it from observing human beings in a state of nature and um, starting methodologically with the fact of individuality. So our tradition, our Jewish tradition, our religious tradition precedes liberalism. And yet there are aspects of Judaism and of Jewish theology that seem to enshrine the value of individual dignity and so make it compatible with certain features of liberalism. How do you think, as a rabbi who occupies the sacred center, if I can say that, you know, between liberalism, pure liberalism, which is kind of atheistic, and some reverence for religiosity, which in its origins is pre-liberal, pre-liberal or non-liberal, how, how do you think about um, the relationship between what Jewish wisdom has to offer and what sort of political wisdom uh, in the liberal vein has to has to say about organizing society. Do you experience those two as separate tracks, as totally in harmony, as a kind of, uh, there's a Venn diagram like it, where, where the two overlap and that's where we want to be? Like, I just feel like right now liberalism is getting a lot of heat um, from the left and the right. And uh, where 50 years ago, it was seen as like, this is, we, this is the thing that won, or maybe not 50 years ago, but, um, and Judaism is outdated or Judaism is illiberal or anti-liberal. And now we're in a, in a place of, I think, ambiguity all around in terms of is, is liberalism going to endure? Should it be defended? How can we defend it? That's on the political side. And then the question of what does it mean to be religious if you don't just want to be captured by secular politics? So I, I think that the way I'd like to approach this, there are so many different uh, portals into this question. The way I want to approach it is by distinguishing between what is good for Judaism and what Judaism teaches, which are not identical. It is good for Judaism to have a liberal society and Jews ought to fight for liberalism because any kind of authoritarian society, right or left, turns out ultimately sooner or later to be bad for Jews. And it's one of the reasons why we see anti-Semitism on the far left and the far right. So, even if Jewish sources don't entirely align with liberalism and Jewish sources don't entirely align with everything, anything, even with themselves, they, we certainly as Jews ought to be fighting for a classically liberal society, for the values of free speech against the militant march of cancellation when someone says something that someone else doesn't like. Um, we want to be able to be, to protect the right to be offensive and different because for out most of human history, we've been offensive and different um, to most of society. So that I would say, do all Jewish sources support that? No, but but that is real, it's good for Jews. I have no doubt about that. I love that answer. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that that's really so. Um, in terms of Jewish sources themselves, I would say a little, what I would, the side that I would edge us toward is, on the one hand, the belief, not that the individual is autonomous, but that the individual is sacred, which is not the same. Um, and that, you know, as many, many, many Jewish thinkers have said before us, um, Judaism begins in obligations, not in rights. So I, I'm very, I mean, early on, I was like captured by, by Buber's sense of there is no autonomous I. You're always an I in relation to other people. And you can delude yourself into thinking that you're an autonomous I, but actually your actions will always affect others. 
And so you always have a certain obligation towards people, even if they're not physically present um, in the rest of the world. And I think that Judaism could, you know, the communitarian aspect of Judaism is needed. So just to recap, it's something like an instrumental defense of liberalism as good for society and good for Jews. But that's not enough. There's a second step, which is, okay, you know, how can we flourish? How can we honor sort of the human soul? And there we need something that isn't just sort of neutral bare liberalism, uh, because once we're sort of a thicker community and we we have some priors that we can agree on, then then norms and obligations come into view and we don't just have to sort of go for the um, the lowest common denominator. Right. And I've I've heard you discuss Levinas and also the critique of Levinas, you know, that it's the obligation of the face in front of you. But on the other hand, what does that mean about the person who's not in front of you? But the larger point that the other human being, whether in front of you or not, the, uh, that other human beings have an ethical claim on us is central. I once read years ago, I think it was Jacob Agus, who was a, uh, who was a conservative rabbi of like 50, 60 years ago. He said, and I'm going to misquote him, and it may not even have been from him, but you will get the sentiment. Um, he said, you can scour all of Jewish literature and nowhere will you find the statement that you cannot care about anyone else. And I never forgot that. I thought that that's true. That's one statement that Judaism couldn't possibly make, that you can just be indifferent to the fate of other human beings. Right. I'm thinking of now of the, the text in Pirkei Avot about the people of Stone, of Sodom, who may, maybe they come close to fitting the bill of uh, total self-centeredness, and obviously that that society is destroyed or becomes untenable. Exactly. You're a mentor, I'm sure, to many people. Uh, people turn to you for guidance and uh, and uh, consolation and and many things. As as somebody who's in that giving role, how do you cultivate a sense of being a student or being um, a seeker? Do you do you have people that you turn to for wisdom or, um, you know, what I think of the, there's speaking of Pirkei Avot, there's that line, make for yourself a teacher. Do you find that you have to make other people into your teachers, whether they want to be or are um, simply as a way of humbling yourself? I, I do, but more by remote control. That is, I don't have somebody in my life. I mean, my father served this role when he was alive. Um, after that, I do it mainly through learning, listening, and books, um, which I don't think is the best way. Um, and, uh, but that's just the way I'm a little, I, I, I have a little bit of an asocial tendency, so I don't do as well, um, with seeking other people out, uh, and, and learning from them. So, so I always liked the fact that when, you know, um, in that same text in Pirkei Avot where it says, find yourself a teacher, and it says, which literally means, buy, literally is buy yourself a friend. So Rashi says the reason it says buy yourself a friend is it's a book. Um, and, and books have, have been some of my best friends uh, over much of my lifetime. But also, I do want to say that I learn from my friends. And I, my friends turn into my teachers. Um, as uh, as in, in all honesty, my daughter now that she's, you know, grown has, I mean, even when she was young, she wasn't teaching deliberately, but now she teaches me deliberately things that I don't know because we are in the first generation 
where younger people have many, many, many life skills and wisdom that older people don't have. It's not like all you had to learn was agriculture. And of course, if you've been doing it your whole life, you knew better. It's like there's so much about the world that my daughter at her age already understands that I don't, that, that she's also my teacher. Well, it's, uh, I hadn't thought of it th this way before, but there's something literal about make for yourself, um, almost like uh, ma make for yourself biologically a teacher. The children are the teachers. Right. right? Um, <laughs> I like that. So I like that very much. Uh, so I'll give you an example. My daughter, she's getting her PhD in autism. And I heard someone say something on the radio about autism. And I asked her about it. And I got a 10 to 15. I don't want to call it a lecture. It wasn't a lecture lecture. But like she talked to me about 10 to 15 minutes about what she was studying and learning. And I thought, this is like this is what you dream of, that someone, you know, someone can grow up to be your teacher. One of the things that strikes me about that text from Pierre Kevo, there are three verbs, right? Uh, make, acquire, buy, as you, as you translated it, and judge. So just for the listeners, there's uh, make for yourself a teacher, acquire for yourself a friend, and judge all people with a scale weighted in their favor. And those three verbs, uh, make, acquire, and judge, are all verbs that appear in the Bible to describe God. God is a creator. God, God is also described as kone shamayim ve'aretz, as a a person who, um, it gets translated as a maker of heaven and earth, but as uh, Michael Eisenberg, who's another guest on the podcast, translates it, God invests in heaven and earth. God acquires heaven and earth. God bonds, uh, binds God's identity to heaven and earth in, in that statement so that it's no longer just, I made you, but I'm part of you. And then there's the, the judgment, which we maybe we associate with the final act of creation, discerning what should stay, what should go, the, the final draft of the editor, and of course, the final draft of our lives that God judges uh, judges us, but in our favor. So all three of those verbs are things that we do in emulation of the divine. That was wonderful. And I love that. But I want to take this into a slightly different direction because I also get your substack. And today I was reading in your substack that you were asking the question, basically, do we care about philosophers' lives or are there abstract ideas separate from their lives? And the reason that I want to bring this up is my life was changed by a philosopher's life. And it's because when I was in high school, I was addicted to Bertrand Russell. I loved Bertrand Russell. He was, he's still the best atheist for my money of all of them. Um, and the most lucid, witty writer imaginable. And I would read his books all the time. And one of the things that my father did that I will give him eternal credit for was one day he came home and he had bought me a couple of Bertrand Russell's books which was his way of saying, I'm not afraid of this guy. If you like reading him, go read him. And then I read a biography of Russell and I saw that his life was a mess, like multiple, multiple affairs, broken marriages, kids who resented him on and on. Every kind of mess was Russell's life. And I thought he speaks as though he's disembodied wisdom, but actually, Philosophy doesn't work that way, or he would have lived a frictionless life. And so for me, at least, part of the reason that I became a rabbi was because I wanted to see if it was possible to live in some ways what you teach, or if what you teach has to be completely intellection and not life. Hmm. That's amazing. So ironically, you learn from the negative example of Bertrand Russell. <laughs> his his life 
taught you more than his philosophy that you need to choose his life. His life taught me not to be, I still love reading him, but his life taught me you don't want to go down this road because look what it brought him. Wow. So as somebody who likes books and, and who just said that books are your teachers, but as someone who also leads a community, what have you, like, what have you learned from being in, in the field with people that you otherwise wouldn't have learned if you sort of stayed a more disembodied scholar? Like how has the, how has the life of being a, a community person and a pastoral presence and a spiritual presence in people's lives sort of helped you live better rather than just have good ideas? More than anything else, I think far more than anything else, it has taught me how much my own judgments of other people are partial and prejudicial and peremptory. And so I have a very politically divided congregation and it's a big temptation to say, oh, the people on that side are just idiots. But then you get to know them and you talk to them and and you don't have that, you just don't have that possibility anymore because you see that they have had life experiences or they thought of things in ways that you could not have imagined. So one of my, my own prejudice, because now I've been in the pulpit for so long, is that the reason academics are sometimes so immature is because they spend ev- their entire lives teaching the same age group. You spend your whole life with 22-year-olds and you don't grow. But I have had the enormous privilege of like being at the bedside of people who are old and dying and, and, and being with parents when they bury children. And so you really do get to see, and it reminds me of that beautiful drosh um, that uh, God says in, in Genesis, that God blesses Abraham with everything. But the truth is Abraham had a very tough life. He left his home. You know, he had, he faced famine. He, one, one kid he throws out of the house, the other he brings up to a mountain to sacrifice, but that's everything. To be blessed with everything means to see pain as well as joy. I'm glad (laughs) for you and for the congregation that you got to find that balance. And um, it's something that I aspire to as well. I'm just wondering, going back to the point about, let's say, um, they don't ask you questions they don't look to you as an authoritarian leader. So on that, on that topic, like, what do you think your congregation's questions fundamentally are then? Um, is maybe those are questions that they're not looking to you to give a propositional answer, but they're turning to you for something. So what is the question that leads a person to seek out Sinai Temple? Is there a, is there a common question or um, a recurrent theme? I think they have a deep desire to perpetuate Judaism, however they understand it. And my synagogue happens to be very supportive of Israel and to make sure that Israel is secure and safe, and again, in whatever way they understand it. And and they have the same desire that I think is a fundamental drive of all human beings, which is for meaning in their lives. And and community does it, and prayer does it, and God does it, and tradition does it. I mean, Judaism offers lots and lots of different ways that people can find their way to meaning. But I I would say that we are a meaning-making machine, uh, our tradition. That's what we do. And, 
And I think that most people who are there are there for that. Mm. Do you think they already have the meaning and they're looking to sort of cultivate it more? Or do you think they're coming without the meaning and they're looking for it to be supplied? So like, I, maybe that's sort of too sharp of a binary, but the, where it's coming from is, I think about he- Heidegger, and he's not the only one to make the point, talks about a human being is thrown into the world. And I think what that means is that we're coming into the world already with certain habits and orientations, and the best we can hope for is to refine them. But we can never really start from scratch, get the Archimedean point of view, and then decide, like, okay, you know, this is the thing I'm going to sign up for. There's no view from nowhere. And I think that um, if you grow up traditional or you grow up in a system of meaning, it's easy. It, that That description is very compelling because you don't have to justify yourself. You just kind of you you start with the given and then you you work from there but if you're like more secular and then you're like well why should i do this why should i do that why should i believe this the heideggerian answer doesn't supply any direction because it's just like well i don't know i mean just follow your throneness so in a jewish context i've seen you know moshe koppel makes this point um judaism straight up it's like why be jewish it's like well that's just what i've been doing that's what my ancestors have been doing i mean i i don't know like not 70 shma i just i do it but I think for so many people, they don't have that. Um, I myself grew up, I'm the child of parents who were sort of Balchuva. Like if you trace my family story back three or four generations, there was a huge hole in the fabric of the Masora of, of handing things down. And so what's the, what's the wisdom that you offer the person who doesn't have the framework versus the person who does? So the person who does, as you as you imply, is, is much easier to get connected because then you just have to say, well, this is how we do your framework. Um, the person who doesn't, I think that the, I, I mean, I don't have any tricks that haven't been tried. The one that, that usually works is start with this. Light Shabbat candles on Friday night or bless your children, just that. And you will see by that single act, by the introduction of sanctity into your life, you will, it will almost be like, oh my God, I didn't know that this dimension of the world could be part of my daily life. And I don't want to live without it now that I know it. Um, and I think that that's uh, a way of, of opening worlds in a single gesture or a single moment. And that's how you start to get people into a system that generates sanctity or or not generates, but opens the door to sanctity. Beautiful. So we live in a time, as you well know, and I'm sure experience even more deeply than I do, uh, the generation of the nuns, of you know, people of no, of no affiliation. And um, some of those are Jewish. <laughs> some of the nuns are Jewish. Some are not Jewish. But all of them are looking to fill that nun with something. They're not they're not disinterested. They just not finding the connection in traditional forms. So let's say a non-Jewish person who isn't looking to convert to Judaism is also want, also wants to know, how do I generate sanctity or discover a door to sanctity in my life? Do you want to be helping that person as well? Because I mean, Judaism is not a proselytizing religion, but as you mentioned also, we we shouldn't be indifferent to the fate of others. So what can can Judaism contribute to the to the problem of the nuns more generally, and what should we be doing to sort of solve that problem? First of all, I'm very, I should put my cards on the table, I'm very pro-convert. Um, I really think that Judy, we've lost so many people over the centuries. Um, 
and we are such a small people and we have so much to offer, I really, I, I encourage conversion. Um, and I know that that's not everybody feels that way, but many, many Jews do. Uh, but the other thing is, I, I think one of the reasons why I'm, I, I, and this is not, uh, this is purely spontaneous and entirely uh, both sincere and authentic. One of the reasons why I'm glad for your voice is because I really think that Judaism has an important uh, series of messages in the public square. And, and we have been very underrepresented as Jews in the public square. Not, I mean, there are plenty, Jew, there are plenty of Jews in the public square, but they're not there as Jewish voices with any familiarity with Jewish history or Jewish text or the Jewish experience. And so, yes, I think there's a lot that, that Jews and Judaism, ha a, a large role they have to play. Uh, the example that you and I both know uh, is the late Jonathan Sachs, who did that very well. And I think that that was just one of many voices that really need to be um, in the public to, to both to present to the world a Judaism that most people don't know, um, but also so that Jews will be able to see because there's a certain pride that you take when someone takes your tradition beyond the boundaries of your village. And you say, oh, look, you see that, that what, I, what I grew up with and what I, what I believe, it, it, it actually speaks to other people too. So for a whole variety of reasons, I think public Jewish voices are enormously important. Well, that's very meaningful for me to hear. When I read um, about Jews in the early 20th century in Europe, I get I I tear up. I'm so I'm so moved on many levels by the profound learning and um, creativity of let's say the you know the generation of Jews in the 19 teens and 1920s and Galicia and Vienna, Berlin, and then it's all interrupted by the Holocaust. And um, I think. You know, I didn't grow up exactly in the shadow of the Holocaust. None of my family members directly um, suffered through that. They they were fleeing the czar and pogroms from <laughs> the 19th and early 20th century from Russia. But um, I didn't really grow up in this sort of traumatic shadow directly of the Holocaust. And I think that has given me a sense of freedom, a sense of optimism about the integration of Jewish thought and sort of other traditions and and more openness to the world. But I have a lot of respect, let's say, for people who are sincerely traumatized by the, the recent memory of the Holocaust. And I guess the question is, like, what lessons do we learn from the project of Jews in the 20s in Europe? Is it like that was a good project, but sadly interrupted and we can just go try to go back there now? Or is or should we be more Judeo pessimistic? Like, yeah, we you know, right when we were being open to German culture, they just sort of turned on us. And so maybe we should, uh, as George Steiner says, keep our bags packed. And, um, you know, it's good. It's good to be open to the world, but but more as a uh, insurance policy. But, you know, ultimately, like there's no real place for the Jew in the world. Well, I have this theory about America and I will try it on you and on your listeners. Um, when people say, could that happen here? I always say no. And it's not because Americans are better people than other people in the world, or it's not because we have a constitution, because other places have constitutions and it meant, meant nothing. The difference is, for most of Jewish history, there were Russians and Jews, Germans and Jews, Frenchmen and Jews, 
Yemenis and Jews. In America, there aren't Americans and Jews. America is composed of many, many, many different groups. Some of them don't like Jews, but they don't like each other either. And so there is a protection in the very heterogeneity of, of American society that I think Americans never had, that Jews never had before. So I don't think the lesson is to keep your bags packed. Now, there are other dangers in America and there are other dangers to the world, all of that. But that all of a sudden America is going to turn on the Jewish people, that I don't believe. How I, I, I won't even say however. And we still need to be extremely vigilant to whatever manifestation, because anti-Semitism can do great, great damage short of a Holocaust. I mean, we, we don't want manifestations, as we've seen over the past, you know, attacks on synagogues and so on. We have to be extremely vigilant and work very hard. And, and among the, the things we have to do, which Jews are not as good at as we should be, is to cultivate friendships with those who are well disposed towards us. And not believe like everybody must hate us. And therefore, when somebody is kind to us, they must not really be a friend. Um, because I don't believe that's true. So, so I think, I think that uh, I, I am very much of the school of let a thousand different Judaisms flourish. They may not all be mine. I may disagree with some of them. Um, but, uh, but I wish, I, I can't imagine what the world might have been like. And... And uh, I hope that in some small way we can make up for the tremendous loss we had by, by reinvigorating Jewish life now. I guess that, that um, optimistic view of America pairs nicely with your story about liberalism, that sort of the more diverse a society is, the more it, it needs to be and, and probably will be liberal as a way of accommodating itself to that variety. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, we both studied at Jewish Theological Seminary, a place that's also changed with the times. And um, one of the features that attracted me to the seminary and probably attracted you and certainly many others is this idea of intellectual honesty, whatever broadly that means. But I think it was pithily captured by Rabbi David Weiss Halivni, who recently passed away, um, that he can... Um, he can't pray with the people that he talked to and couldn't talk to the people he prayed with, which I, I've, I view that as intellectual honesty because it's saying like, I'm willing to go and, and think about uh, and study things that make my religious community uncomfortable simply because I'm a truth seeker. So I find that very moving and very compelling. And I think it speaks to a kind of freedom of the spirit, a freedom of thought that is also a staple of liberalism at, at its best. But um, that was a very long-winded way of really asking, are, is intellectual honesty overrated or underrated or appropriately rated? Because in the, let's say, the 50s, conservative Judaism was looked like it was going to be the future of American Judaism. And now I'm not so sure, to the extent that it represents intellectual honesty even, um, that it's going to be. So should, should we, if we could sort of reverse the clock, I'm sure intellectual honesty works for David Weiss-Olivny, but should we be optimizing for something else besides intellectual honesty? So yes, is the short answer, um, but I'm gonna give you a longer one, of course. Intellectual honesty is, is both underrated and overrated. 
The underrated part is that most people, most of the time, don't exert themselves to be intellectually honest about things that make them uncomfortable. And you see this in politics, where the two sides will not make a concession to the other side, even if they know that the other side is correct about something, because intellectual honesty does not, will not overcome their tribal loyalties. So in that sense, it's underrated, uh, overrated. Well, one, one of the two. In that sense, it's not properly rated. It's not esteemed enough. Um, the way in which it is overrated for conservative Jews is a bunch of academics thought that it was going to be religiously motivating. And intellectual honesty is not religiously motivating. It's exciting to study. It's interesting to study. But the number of people whose religious life will be sustained by study are fairly small. And I think conservative Jews basically thought the entire world was, was the seminary. And then you get these people who are very far from that, who just want to be moved and want to be touched. Um, and, and to say to them, oh, look, we have three different versions of this manuscript is just not going to be the thing that will enable them to be moved. So we have tried very hard, and I think we're still working at it, to recapture the emotional core of the tradition, without which there is no beating heart to the way, I mean, there might be a, a lucid mind, but no beating heart to this tradition. Well said. So maybe this, I'll close with this question. Um, you and I both appreciate a verse in the Torah that describes the Torah, it's in Moses' speech in Deuteronomy, that describes the Torah as et uh, this song or this poem. And I think just in terms of the emotional salience and the spiritual salience of the Torah, it's a great line because it suggests that engagement with this project requires us to do more than just apply our minds, but something like our, our whole being or our hearts. What does it mean to you that the Torah is a song or a poem? And what can we do to sort of shape Jewish culture to the extent that we can to, to orient itself to Torah as a song or a poem and not just as a text? It's funny, I, what, what came to mind when you said that was the, the line from Yeats's poem, Sailing to Byzantium, and there is no singing school but studying. So part of it is, I mean, to a little bit contradict what I said before, I think for people like you and, and me, studying is its own song. Um, but, but I also, one of the things that is beautiful about song that is true of very few other things is you can do it with other people and lose your own voice in it. And, and so when the congregation sings together, that's a peak of religious experience. And the reason that I love the idea of the Torah as a song is because it takes it out of the individual experience and makes it the collective experience. It's the song that Israel sings together, right? Azia Shir Mosheb Ne Israel. Here, Moses sang and the children of Israel. Um, so I think when, when Israel sings that song together, the Torah is fulfilled far more than when the individual sits down and studies and comes up with an insight, even though that is so much of what draws people who are intellectually inclined to the tradition. But I don't believe that the tradition lives on insights. I think it uh, it lives on song. 
I love that very much. So I'm just going to ask one follow up, which is um, if you if you're looking for an expression of collectivism and sort of the song of the Jewish people in the 20th century, my immediate go to is the state of Israel, um, just in terms of the magnitude and intensity of the project. But you and I both live in diaspora and um, have committed ourselves to reviving Jewish life or participating in Jewish life in the diaspora. So um, the model that I go to when I think about diasporic Jewish life is Franz Rosenzweig, who describes Jewish community as living in calendar time as opposed to living in linear time. So sort of the Hegelian, the Hegelian view of time is that history progresses, and it was often was Hegelians who kind of, especially secular Zionists who 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 saw the 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 end of Judaism in state building. I I see the state more instrumentally. And, but I'm curious to to hear from you, kind of, where do you think the song lives most? Is it in a national project? Is it in a transnational project? Is it a local project? You know, find five people, find your synagogue, or how should we be thinking about the the best way to organize ourselves with others in this sort of globalized, fractured world? I think that the uh, one thing that is essential especially post-pandemic in 2022, is that people sing together in person. In that sense, they're the great threat to Jewish community, a great threat to Jewish community, is that it will exist only on screens. And, and that's not, panim el panim means face-to-face, it's not screen-to-screen. Um, so I'm hopeful that our song will continue in person, in a in a thousand different places and a thousand different ways, um, and but but it will be, you know, by uh, by looking into the eyes of the other, um, which is after all that's that's an amazing thing about like if you take the most important person in Jewish history, Moses, it doesn't say he did the most mitzvot of anybody. It doesn't even say he was the best person who ever lived. That may or may not be true, but it doesn't say that. What it says is he saw God face to face, which means that seeing someone face to face is the, that's the zenith of it. So if, if we return to being in person um, and, and to being together, um, there's, there's hope. That's a beautiful place to end. I just can't help but make some snarky uh, comical response, which is, you know, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he's wearing a veil. And uh, you, you got you got me thinking that maybe, you know, there's the face to face and then there's, you, you know, Pixar didn't happen. He, he had to he had to tweet. He had to tweet about it. No, I mean, that's not accurate to Moses, his personality. <laughs> but if, maybe maybe the veil is uh, the social media presence that takes us full circle to David and, and persona and yeah. private and public. So, yeah, I will just remind you at the end of the wedding, though, you lift the veil. Beautiful. Thank you for your time and insight and, and all that you do. Thank you so much. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. 
You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.